I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We can all talk about technology, but, you know, the reality is that just the rate of general change in many parts of the world has just accelerated. Mm. And so the ability to be nimble and just increase your rate of learning becomes the key defining factor. Mm. G'day there, gang. I'm your host, Bram Connolly, and this is the one and only Warrior You podcast, proudly brought to you by Ironside Coffee and Aussie Strength. See what I did there? I got the uh, sponsors up front. Right, the Warrior You podcast is my way to seek answers about leadership, human optimization, and mental toughness. Today, I'm speaking with Phil Hayes St. Clair. You know he's important because he has two last names, one of which has the designation Saint in it. To be fair, Phil is someone who I consider a friend and also who I turn to when I want to float any business ideas. He's the creator and host of the Founder to Founder podcast and he's what's best described as a serial entrepreneur. He was also once a triathlete at the elite level and an aspiring helicopter pilot. Phil knows success and he also knows failures, but most importantly, he knows how to balance them all out. He's an all-around great guy. I know you'll get a lot out of this podcast. Now, a quick reminder to go and leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts to be in the running for the free ticket to the Echelon Front Muster in Sydney in December of this year. Oh, and also remember that tickets are now available for my live show, The Warrior You, live podcast recording, which will take place in Sydney on December 6th of this year. You can get tickets at events.warrioru.com.au. Right, let's have a quick talk about my sponsors. Firstly, Aussie Strength. Now, you know that they are the original sponsor of the Warrior U podcast, but do you know that they also not only fit out industrial gyms, but they do home gyms as well? So if you want to find out more, contact them on www.aussiestrength.com.au. And they have their very own Warrior U page. Ironside Coffee, they're another one of our sponsors and they are doing great things in the Canberra region and also nationally. Uh, If you want to find out more about Ironside Coffee, go and follow them on Instagram. And did you know that they are actually supporting the Echelon Front Muster in December? They are providing uh, coffee samples and coffee for the event. So go and check them out, Ironside Coffee. Phil Hughes St. Clair, how are you? Welcome to the Warrior You podcast with your host, me, hey, Bram. Bram Connolly. <laughs> Always love talking to you, Bram. I like to inject positivity into everything and because positivity is what I do and leadership is a exchange of positivity. It is. And other anecdotal sort of quips. How are you? Life is good for me. Fam- family's good. Business is good. Other side hustles, good. I like how you've set up your entrepreneurial basement office or wherever you are there with the light just shining like Messiah over the top of your head there. <laughs> um, That's deliberate. That's taken years to get right. Even though <laughs> even though I'm in a different room, but the angle makes it look like you're actually speaking down to me. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very, very, that, very well set up, mate. That too is also deliberate. <laughs> Um, So I thought I'd have you on the podcast to talk all things entrepreneurial and doesn't matter that you sold out on me. We won't talk about that tonight. What will No idea what you're talking about. Sure you do. Maybe I'll edit that bit out. Yeah, I don't know. Well, we'll see where this takes us. And I thought we'd start by perhaps you just giving the listeners for Warrior You a little bit of an insight into you sort of growing up and then your foray into the ADF. Yeah, sure thing. So, first of all, I've been listening to this podcast from the beginning and I love it. It's evolved into a really, just a really great sort of positive podcast that I just love. There are too many of them out there just ramble on with stuff and I just love what you're doing with it. But you know what? So, it started uh, for me in school, Army Cadets, fell in love with it and everything to do with, you know, field craft and 
all the small things you do as a cadet. Mm. Enlisted out of school, I met some of the guys who you know well, who eventually ended up in SF. Um, my ambition was to uh, to fly helicopters, and so I enlisted in uh, in Toowoomba in Queensland at the 25th Battalion Royal Queensland Regiment, infantry soldier, and essentially went through the selection process for SSO pilot, failed that through uh, twice, on the third time made it through, and that was in 1999. And as I was about to sort of change roles, as it were. They called me back for one more look. Um, they thought they found something in an eye exam. It turned out they did, and they diagnosed me with keratoconus, which is a, an eye-shaped problem, which rendered me essentially unserviceable for a bunch of different roles. And so I had the option of going and running a desk for a career or doing something else. I opted for something else, um, not knowing what that was at the time. And it was devastating because as far as I was concerned, my Plan A through to Z was, you know, related to military. Mm. And so it was pretty shocking, you know, and it was only months later that obviously Timor happened, my battalion or part of my battalion deployed, and I was on the sidelines on the way to being discharged. And then obviously September 11 happened after that and everything spun up. So it was sort of looking at things from uh, from the side, just feeling deeply ripped off. Mm. And the thing that I think helped me remember what I really enjoyed doing was a friend of mine recalling that at age 10, um, I had a way of getting kids in my neighborhood together in a posse and fleecing the neighbors for 20 bucks at a time to fix up their gardens. And it was a lot of fun because I could, you know, we made a lot of money as, as kids and it was all cash and 20 bucks and, you know, the late 80s was a lot of cash for, yeah. for little people. And I think I gave that sort of hustling up for what I thought was brotherhood mm. in the ADF and I really enjoyed it. And I think I probably spent the next sort of four or five years searching for that in the private sector and really mm. struggled to find it. Rusted onto the best leaders I could find. They taught me a bunch of stuff, you know, in corporate finance and banking and, and, and things which I, I didn't really enjoy, but I did enjoy learning. Mm. And so at one point I was building products and movements inside large organizations and really enjoyed doing that. But then the recommendation to me was, look, you know, you should really think about giving this a crack outside. So you're like an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's how it started, trying to scavenge resource from wherever I could find it, convincing people that there was a better way of doing stuff. And sometimes, you know, walking over people's toes and getting in a fair bit of trouble for it. So um, you were doing leadership. You were doing leadership back in the back in the day, back when you were a kid, <laughs> putting the other kids to work. And I, I sort of see you leaning over a, sh- a shovel, Huckleberry Finn style, like just you know, while the other kids worked and then you getting the money off old Mrs. Dawson and handing out <laughs> handing out $5 notes and keeping 10 for yourself. While you were doing that, I was laying in a stormwater drain on the 12th green waiting for the golf ball to land in front of me and then I'd run out because I'd worked out that it was – I'd worked out that it was at an oblique angle and they couldn't see me. It was like a dog leg and I was filling buckets full of golf balls and then going back and selling them to the golfers for a dollar a ball. <laughs> That's a profitable business. That's one of the best out there. It's, well, it's still a great model. It was um, – yeah, and they must have known what was going on. I reckon they used to hit like one or two balls – like old balls that we'd grab and then they'd hit their real ones, their max flights. And but, but after a while, one of my mates goes, you know what, if we could save up enough money out of golf balls and buy a, a mask and a snorkel, we can go to the bottom of that dam and I reckon they'd be – and, and we, hit, <laughs> All the good ones. we hit pay dirt. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, isn't That's it? Gold. And now here we are, me scavenging – here I am scavenging. <laughs> here you are making people go to work for you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the good news is, for the record, we all split it equally, but uh, I'm, I'm sure that there was more work done. I was trying to convince people to pay us more money and other yeah. people were doing the work, so it was um, seemed to work out pretty well. So it must have been, yeah, it must have been crushing the whole, you know, SSO helicopter pilot, all of that, you know, because you've got to be, they are so brutal, aren't they, with what they're after? And I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that you would have been perfect for that for that role, having spent a lot of time with pilots in the in the four-hour commando and then second commando regiment mess. You know, we were we obviously had an aviation detachment. And but it, something like an eye, you know, some sort of an eye problem or something like that, which probably has given you absolutely no drama or grief or anything ever. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing was, and I'll never forget the message that I, was, that I received from the ophthalmologists. You know, it was in a Brisbane mm. sort of office block where sitting in the chair, a bunch of stuff on my face trying to, you know, tell him what I could see and what I couldn't see. 
And look, you know, the seed for me was planted with Hank Pronk, who was the commanding officer at the time of um, the School of Army Aviation in Toowoomba. Like, a- as Army cadets, we had the chance it's to sit in the back of Black Interesting Hawks. last name. And- like yeah, exactly. Army, yeah. army royalty there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he was the guy that, you know, the CEO of our cadet unit knew him well and mm. they could just make a call. And back in the day, you know, two two Iroquois and three Blackhawks just rocked up and, you know, yeah. took a bunch of cadets that didn't know any better mm. on joy flights and it was just mad. Like mm. it was just one of those things you go, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Mm. And so had a chance to meet with a lot of guys out at Oki and it was just, I thought it was destiny, but I'm, I'm almost six foot five. And so the thing that always struck me was, you know, I'm not going to fit in the cockpit. Like I thought that was going to be my big issue. As it turns out, I had a whole bunch of anthropometric testing done, photos taken in cockpits, you know, all garbed up so that mm. it was all real, you know, helmets on, MVGs on so that I could prove that I could actually fit in the cockpit. I thought that was my biggest challenge solved. As it turns out, there was the eye condition I never knew I had, and mm. that was the thing that sort of stuck. But, mate, I just I remember the the full body sweat that I just broke into when the mm. guy literally turned to me and said, "Sorry, mate, it's not going to happen." And I was just like, "Jesus!" I can't imagine you being told no either. I mean, what was was triathlon before this or after it? That was after it. After, yeah, yeah. I think that was part of my coping mechanism. Yeah, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, and, and I, you know, for the listeners, you were. Well, I'd say world-class triathlete, bordering on. I think it's, I think it's generous. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I, could, I could get around a course. Close enough to being – I mean, there was aspirations there, wasn't there? Yeah. So, I mean, never really a great athlete at school, but, uh, you know, one of my – one of the things that is problematic when you go to an all-rugby school is not being you – know, not getting the permission slip signed by your old man to mm. allow you to play rugby. So the alternative for me was, you know – I just swam. So I swam, you know, just about all year round, got pretty proficient at it. And, you know, when the army thing, so I was, I was, I did pretty well in BFAs and other things, but when I got out, it was, well, you know, how can I channel the energy? Cause otherwise I'll probably do some pretty destructive stuff. Mm. And so I found a triathlon squad out of UQ in Brisbane and just put myself to it. And so from, a guy that really couldn't run very well but could swim and had never really ridden a bike, just mm. got stuck into it and got selected on the Australian team in 2004 and competed at World Champs for Australian Triathlon. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's how I first came to find out about you, actually, because I was stalking, oh, really? I was stalking triathletes. Yeah, back in the day. Back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You were certain. I, I obviously went through and had a look at those that your race times and you were certainly no slouch. But it's interesting, isn't it? It's another, another high-performing solo where you've only got yourself to to sort of hold to account it's very it's a very yep. good analogy for entrepreneurship yeah i mean you, you spend a lot of time in your own brain right like yeah. you know you know what it's like to do the training for this sort of stuff i think my you know my memory of, of the, our longest running weeks when we we're just trying to put k's into our legs mm-hmm. literally running all over brisbane um i think my longest running week was 103 kilometers in a week mm. and for and for a guy just, just tall people don't run well right and unless you're ethiopian and just are built to run i'm certainly not one of those people and just getting that kind of training in it over a big dense block like that was was tricky i mean it was it was also on top of you know doing a thousand kilometer bike weeks and swimming you know close to 90 k's a week as well in the really intensive kind of blocks and all you were doing really was fueling yourself as best you could sleeping and just getting out there and doing it knowing that it was a defined period so you could put the you know put the distance in your body Mm. but you're pretty broken after it Mm. but then obviously when you get on the track you go to all the meets around the country, you know, Malulabar and Noosa and you know, the, the nicer sort of places opposed to Davenport where you're swimming bloody in Antarctica and those sort of places. Like it's it's a cool thing to do, but it's certainly an obsession. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Is it safe to say that the SSO pilots sort of experience set you up to understand that failing something or being knocked back is okay? Yeah. After although, a while. Obviously, I didn't, I, I didn't accept that at the time. No, of course I, I think um, mm. it was – I look back on it and sort of go, it was pivotal to get to, get me to where I am now. But I tell you what, like that that had a trail of sort of emotional devastation, I think, for probably a good three or four years. Yeah. Before I started to find a love for other stuff. So I don't think it's I don't think it's an uncommon story. Um and even even now, like some of the guys who are still based down here, who you know, the last of them is getting out shortly. The other guys are flying, you know, search and rescue or they're the ambulance pilots flying out of Royal North Shore here in Sydney. Yeah. And they were flying through the city 
um, with you guys back in the day. They're, they're just doing a very different kind of job now, uh, mm-hmm. and we're still great mates. Um, and they just happen to have an ultimate job of four days on, four days off, flying around Sydney doing cool stuff. Mm. Yeah, fair call. What was your first branch into being an entrepreneur? What was your first thing that you went, I'm going to have a crack at this? Yeah. So apart from the 10-year-old thing, so- Which was highly successful the ten when you were 10. It, very profitable, did very well. I mean, the amount of one cent lollies you could get for the amount of money we made was extraordinary. Mm. <laughs> but I think the thing that, um, so uh, when I was, I was working for a bank, organized a charity bike ride that had hundreds of staff involved. We rode around Queensland raising money for skin cancer. And it was a great cultural effort and huge amount of effort from people that was all volunteer based. And we raised a bunch of cash, gave it to a charity, and it, it just sort of felt as though it, have, it just sort of got sucked into the organization. We didn't really know where it went. And it was, mm. it was large six-figure numbers. Um, and, wow. you know, the question in my mind was, you know, where did it go? How do we find out? How do we tell people that put this effort in what their effort was for? Mm. And as I started to dig into it, I found that there was a, a really big problem mm. across the board where people were frustrated with, you know, transparency as it were. So my first foray out was to raise some money and propose on this very elaborate, you know, 300-page business plan that I'm going to build software to make that process transparent. And I raised money literally weeks before the GFC hit, left my job and thought that I could do it. And I just completely botched all planning, all expectation, you know, all the money I made, sorry, brought into the business. It was nowhere near what was required. And I fundamentally blew up that company and that effort because I just didn't obsess enough about the problem. Yeah. Like I didn't know what I was getting into. And so, you know, nearly went bankrupt as a consequence, tried to keep it alive, um, ultimately got just about all the investors, their money back while I was working two jobs. Cause that was important to me at the time. And mm. that was three ventures ago. Yeah. Right. You've always struck me as a really complicated entrepreneur too. It's not like you go, I'm going to get this t-shirt it's uh, I'm going to buy it for five dollars. I'm going to sell it for fifty five dollars, and I'm going to put fifty. Like you don't fuck around with entrepreneurial things like Shopify like that. Like you go, I'm going to solve a problem. It's a different type of. Wouldn't you agree? It's a different type of entrepreneur that you are. It's a different flavor than that. Yeah, look, I, I still I still like to flip stuff, right? Mm. Like you know, trying to find something and create a margin. I, I still mm. think there's a there's a big role for that, and mm. I do that with one of my side hustles, you know, with Be in Motion, but. I don't. Yeah, um, but being motions still, it's solving a problem. It's not just here's a cup, yeah. here's a here's a hat. It's a no. That, that's true. That's true. There's an emotional yeah. connection to that problem. It's a problem. It's not. I mean, I, I know entrepreneurs who've made a million dollars a month from selling mm. sock subs- subscriptions. Right. Yep. So that yep. that's not so, be in motion. Be in motion is like let me solve a problem for someone who wants to say to someone else, hey, I've got an emotional connection for you and I want you to know that I appreciate you. That's what being emotion is for for my mind. Yeah, that's that's true. And yeah, that's that's true. Look, I think the- I mean, socks is is solving cold feet. It's not the same shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. true. Look, I just just figure, mate, that, you know, we're on the planet for a really, really small amount of time. Like Mm. if you look in the context of history- you know, we're here for like a nanosecond. Mm. And the question is, you know, how are you going to look back on your last breath, as I've heard you describe, mm. and sort of go, I've left nothing on the track. And it's actually been really impactful for people that were close to me and mm. maybe for people who I've never met, but there was an impact there somehow. Mm. And I just think it's a good use of time. But the problems I've gone after before, some some in retrospect just seem really quite odd. You know, the one that I spent four years cultivating with some good friends of mine was a company called Airshare. It was born out of the idea that what would happen if you could hold on to a moment that you heard. Um, and so you think about Shazam, you hear a song, you go, what is that song? Hold your phone up, you know, press the button, find out what it is. But we looked at that for people who were, you know, in cars listening to radio and you would hear like a, a story that was an interview between, say, a, a book, an author and the person on the station. And you, they went to a really deep conversation. You go, I really love that conversation, but I'm in the car. I'm never going to go and Google it. You know, it's lost. Um, and what we essentially invented was a way for you to press a button in the car. It would record a really small snippet of that audio. It would take it back to a set of servers, do some really impressive maths, and we'd triangulate exactly the radio station you were listening to, the time that it was at, and then get you back that audio neatly spliced and ad-free so that you could relive that moment. And there was a thing about 
you know, capturing moments and reliving moments and sharing moments with people that we thought was really impressive. And we built a business around it. We built, you know, really, really impressive technology and the business model was wrong. So, you know, after four and a half years, we ended up saying to radio stations, look, you guys have actually never known who's ever listened to you. Like you don't have a clue who's listening to you at any given point. So what we can do is we can tell you who is listening and you can start to become, you know, really digitized and really responsive to how it's going to go. And the data we showed them was absolutely extraordinary. Like we could see where people were traveling to, you know, people opted into this. It wasn't nefarious. And they turned around and said, well, it's actually really difficult for us to explain to our advertisers. So thanks, but no thanks. And they shut us down in a a matter of weeks. And we could have been the renaissance for that entire, you know, two, $3 billion industry in this country. And they decided not to. Crazy. And yet, here we are now with the gig economy and podcasting and just in time, just for whenever you want to listen to content, and the whole game's changed again. I mean, I I think I've listened to the radio. I listened to ABC News Radio at 5 o'clock in the morning, between 5 in the morning Mm -hmm. to 5.30 when I'm getting ready to go downstairs to the gym. That's the only time I listen to the radio, and it's to hear that it's because I've got something set where it goes off. So I can hear, yep. so I can get updated on what stupid thing Trump said now. Oh shit! I just lost half my podcast audience. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> we're allowed to disagree. Yeah, right. So, and, and that's a, that's a thing, isn't it? Like we were told that newspapers would cease to exist. They're still yep. there. They're different, and they're going online. And you know, I'm saying that radios are going to cease to exist, but podcasting it'll be different. It'll be yeah. different, and podcasting's coming, and perhaps. Perhaps podcasting will become the new radio. Yeah, and as you know, I'm playing around a lot now with, you know, advertising on podcasts and how it works and trying to work out how to monetize that and, and run a business out of it, which is an interesting project. Yeah, and then the phone is the is the medium. The phone, the iPhone really, and, and iTunes and podcasts basically is what's driving all that. And if that changes, if that technology changes, then we don't, then something else will change as well. Yeah, well, I think it's just the rate of change, though. Like across many things, we can all talk about technology, but you know, the reality is that just the rate of general change in many parts of the world has just accelerated. Mm. And so the ability to be nimble and just increase your rate of learning becomes the key defining factor. Mm. So, you know, whenever you're, it doesn't matter what industry you're in or what your hobbies are, the people that you want to probably surround yourself with are the people that just have a penchant to learn really quickly on whatever their subject matter is. And you want to rust onto those people so they can teach you stuff too. Entrepreneur, the word, are they wankers or is it a new breed of, is it, is it the new rock climber from the 1980s? You know, is it the alter- <laughs> is it a counterculture? Is it a counterculture? Are they alternative? Is it for everyone? So entrepreneurship, you know, the idea of being an entrepreneur is in vogue for probably all the wrong reasons. Mm. Um, the guy that you know that cuts your hair, the person that is your fruiterer or your fishmonger, the person that changes the tires, you know, all the people that are small business owners that said, we know You of, said my fishmonger, so obviously you mean my blacksmith as well and my chimney sweep, like those guys. I, I, I mean all those people. You know, I know they're all over there. It's Perth, um, it's Perth you mate. Know, <laughs> I love Perth. You know, the funny thing is you – that they're all entrepreneurs in their own right, right because right. what they've decided to do is to generate wealth yeah. independently. Jim's right? mowing. And that's mm. – yeah, that's right. This is all that they're doing. What has happened with technology is that we've taken this stereotype that involves laptops mm. and stickers and hoodies and cool <laughs> shoes, and you have to have that in order to make that work. Yeah. Um, and I say that knowing that I'm wearing a hoodie right now with very bright shoes and jeans, and that is my day is, job. It just struck me, is, is an influencer – an entrepreneur by virtue of the fact that they're an influencer or is that someone who's got a shelf life and they're just making the most of it like a football player or something like that? Bit of both. Mm. Mm. Bit of both. I mean, I, I hate the term entrepreneur because of what it conjures up. You know, whenever I think about, you know, people like you, people like me who are just trying new things, mm. we're just leaders trying new things. Mm. Um, we don't know if they're going to work. We hope they will. You know, we're investing heavily in them, but you know, I prefer to think about people who are entrepreneurs, as it were, as founders of businesses and founders of movements. Yeah. They're, the, they're the epicenter of where stuff starts and anyone can be that because the tool set that you need to make that work is for the most in, for the most part free or the marginal cost is zero. 
and it's just up to you to want to make it happen. Oh. I mean, this is how we started our podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, and and I think that I wouldn't see, I wouldn't classify myself as an entrepreneur so much as an artist, but someone who's artistic and and find, so artistic. Yeah, I, autist, I find this as a <laughs> I find this as a, a vent for a, an artistic side of me that the podcast. Plus, I like having conversations. But it is an it is an entrepreneurial, yeah. It it is an entrepreneurial type of thing that I'm doing, I guess, as well, because it, it's it's how I live, it's what I do. Yeah, but what's interesting about that, Bram, is that you're doing this as something on the side mm. to what people would consider to be a traditional kind of career, mm. um, even post military, right? So, what I there's a book that um, Reed Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, wrote about four or five years ago and it's called the alliance Mm. and the alliance talks about this idea that the career escalator in everything is now broken or it just doesn't exist anymore Mm. so there are more people who are doing you know a bunch of portfolio jobs to generate wealth so they might have one primary gig they've got maybe two side gigs or just one of each um, or they've just got a bunch of side thing in the gig economy right Mm. people and these people uh, either studying to better themselves or they're trying to find a way to make money. And even if they're not, not doing it to make money, they're doing it just to, you know, fuel an interest or to have a valve to manage their creative outlet. And that happens all the time. I think people are just really surprised, you know, when they sort of learn what you do as a day job, what I do for a day job, and they go, but how do you do this podcasting thing and everything else? Like, where do you find the time? And the, the reality is we just got really good at managing time. Yeah. Oh, oh God. If I mean I've done whole blogs and podcasts on time management and and I you know in the sort of vein of Gary Vanderchuk you know if you want to find time you'll find the time like I'm up at five o'clock I'm in the gym at five thirty I'm out of the gym at six thirty yep. I'm at my day job at seven thirty you know I'm home at you know four thirty five o'clock I'm then you know I've then got structures in place where and we don't have a traditional let's get around and eat. You know, three meals because the, uh, you know, because some regulatory body or framework from the government has said that we should be eating cereals in the morning and then sandwiches at lunch and then steak at dinner. Like, I don't subscribe to that shit. We eat when we're hungry. Yep. The kids don't go. The kids go to the fridge when they want. They do what they want. They do what they want. You know. And then I've got all <laughs> all night until ten o'clock to do podcasting and editing and you know Instagram post planning and all this sort of stuff that goes with the architecture that is the show um yep. it's a lot of work you know it's a lot of a lot of work for not much return except when you get the email from someone like hey man you saved my life or hey man you helped me totally. do this or hey or hey yep. you know or hey i hate your guts it's like good you know awesome i don't get many of them but i get a lot of the others <laughs> but, you know it's good it's, it's good well i think the th- i remember seeing a post like before we got to know each other well i remember seeing i don't know what social media it was maybe instagram I think a comment you made was never stop because you don't know who you're inspiring. Yeah, true. Um, and that's never I've, that's never left me since mm. I've read that. And it's interesting as well because I, I think I I dropped the ball on my podcast for about two or, two or so months and I was religiously sort of putting things out once a week or twice a week. And I had these dudes write me and say, look, you're like, when's the next one coming? Like mm. you've left us hanging. And it was just I actually didn't know anyone was listening. Like mm. I, I never bothered to check the analytics or – I just was doing it because I thought it was a bit of fun. But as it turns out, you you do inadvertently inspire a bunch of people by doing what we do. So it's important to keep going, even if you can't feel it day by day. Oh, absolutely. And I, I also find, you know, in line with what you're saying is that the ability to be able to pump positivity through a podcast into the ether, you know, it shouldn't be underestimated because no. not doing it, not doing it is, I mean, my, my son said to me today, he goes, is there an opposite to everything? And I had to think about that. It's a great question from a seven-year-old. And I went, well, I looked at the lamppost and I said, well, I don't think the lamppost has an opposite. And he goes, yeah, the opposite would be it wouldn't be there and it wouldn't, and there wouldn't be any light. Oh, that's like, deep. Yeah. yeah. Oh, mate, you should hear the one about the time machine that he's got. He goes, if, if you go forward in a time <laughs> machine and then you go back in a time machine, did you even go forward? Anyway. Man. Mind, mind yeah. blown. <laughs> As a generation, I think we're being outgunned. Oh like God. seriously, yeah. our kids, like they are just mm. the next level. Yeah, well, I, I heard something interesting from Zach Bush the other day who was being interviewed by Rich Roll and he was talking about how a, a one-year-old or a six-month-year-old child would be devastated if you took the iPhone away from them. And they're trying to get to this iPhone and 
and they've got it there and they see it. And and he was saying, well, it could be one of two things. The first could be that they're seeing you on it all the time. So they know it's bloody important because you're always on it. Therefore, yep. I want to be on it. Right? Maybe that's happening. But he said he thinks that what could be happening at a molecular level is this universal groupthink where because we're all of a molecular structure that's come from the same place anyway, and it's poss- very possible, and there's a whole heap, I won't go into it in detail in here, but there's a whole heap of studies around um, organisms being able to talk to each other without talking, for instance. You know, ex- oh, for sure. Fit, you know, tr- yeah, well documented. I've one, seen some of those. One, If you dump a bag of fertiliser, for instance, this is an example they gave at one end of a, a paddock, you know, within a couple of weeks the, the grass down the other end of the paddock has the same amount of fertilizer in it because it's been transported down to them through the through the grass, you know, or yep. or trees when they're being eaten by giraffes, for instance. One of the trees, when it starts to go into stress, it changes its leaves so that they become bitter, and the next thing you know, every tree has changed its leaves to the same bitterness so that they don't get eaten. You know, they're they're communicating, and he's saying, well, perhaps perhaps all these kids. You know, all these people are communicating at this molecular level anyway, that and they and they know that this phone's important because this is the thing that's connecting them, and they need to get hold of it and they need to see it. There's something going in on on that, and these you're right. And I'll tell you something else too, Phil. I've been taught, I've been lucky. I've been interviewing a whole heap of entrepreneurs lately that are in their twenties, and then I've been listening to people talk to me. My age and older about leadership, and I'm unfucking inspired by the people my age and older. They don't understand what leadership is. They still don't. They're talking about it in in the old context of leadership, like the pharaohs sitting at the top of a pyramid looking down. Whereas these kids that I'm talking to, these this Forbes thirty under thirty guy that I talked to a couple of weeks ago, you know, twenty six years old, he's, he's you know he's making a million dollars a month plus, and he's he's saying to me, oh well, no leadership's linear, like it's flat. And we got to, you got to, when you've got to inspire someone who's your friend as a leader, it's a completely different ball game. And they're, and they're onto it. They're onto this new leadership, you know, this, this, this whole new paradigm, this leadership paradigm. They're, they're onto it. They, they get it. I talk to them about leadership and, and it's about leading leaders and, you know, being in charge and having a, you know, the framework underneath you and understanding your role and your tasks and your jobs and having, Having all of those legislative, you know, bodies in place so that you've got a legal framework to lead within, and and they're like, yeah, but why don't we just all get together around a table and go, you know, and I'll be the spokesperson, and then we'll get together and we'll all learn, and I'll lead them. It's yeah, I mean, th- this inspiring. is this this is the point, right? It's awesome, and the thing is, the thing that is driving that, I think, for the most part, is curiosity. So. The younger generation, even from kids, like, so I've got two girls, um, age four and six, and anyone who's got kids will know this. There is a level of curiosity that is exerted from a very, very young age. But mm-hmm. when you go into the, the next level of leadership that's happening between the age of like 18 and say, or even 15 wow. and 30, they have a very different way of looking at stuff. And it's all to do with how quickly can I learn? Because I think I want to know more than what I knew yesterday. Mm. And to some extent, a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, people of our generation and older have decided that learning and their rate of learning is important, and as a consequence, they're relying on what they think they know. That yeah. could be a problem. Yeah, it's interesting. I do, I do think that we're, you know, it's it's like the whole global warming, you know, issue. We can't change that now. What, so what we need to do is we need to train our seven-year-olds. You know, yep. we need to train them to 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 fix it. You know, they're the ones who have to fix it. We can't fix it. We can't even decide whether or not we're going to, you know, who we're going to vote for. And, or, you know, they can't even organise Brexit. You know, how are they yeah. going to solve global warming? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because um, so in our, in our business at Drop, we have 
we recruit a bunch of people from some very specialist areas of science in essentially machine learning, but where there's biology at play and massive data sets that involve, you know, genomics and protein data and, and how we're trying to create dimensions to understand, you know, if you have a predisposition genetically to something, whatever it is, and there's a whole bunch of protein happening in your body that goes up and down because of the cycles that happen, you know, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. Because we've never been able to see it that at that level of precision before. And it's ironic that in this day and age, the people that know the most about this aren't the scientists that came up with these older sort of frameworks before. They're the graduates from a six-year, six-year dual degree undergraduate, not medicine, like six-year undergraduate course where they're the ones that know how to do maths and mm. piece together things that are just remarkable. And we're hiring them before they finish school, uh, before they finish university, and they are sort of 22 years 22 years old on average. Um, they've never had a job before. They understand data. They have trouble communicating what they're seeing, mm. but they can process things in their own mind and with all the tools they've got at a rate which is just daylight ahead of where any of us could do it. That doesn't surprise so me. That doesn't. The reason that doesn't surprise me is you go into any gym in this country where mm -hmm. there's a whole heap of meatheads in there, and I mean big, <laughs> big meatheads, right? Yeah. And, you, and, and you know they're on the gear, and you start to yep. talk to them about the chemical reactions inside the body and what these steroids or what any of these compounds are doing, and they know far more than what doctors do. They know far. Yep. They know far more about dosages. They know far, and it just what it says to me is the the and these are people who might have been dumb as a box of hammers in school, but they've got their mm -hmm. names around all the products now because they're passionate about it. They've got names around all the long Latin names. They've got that they understand the physiology, yep. the sports science behind it, you know, and they are brilliant. And what that says to yep. me is that our school system, which was never good you know, the universities and the like, it was all designed around control. It just, it just mm -hmm. shows you that it's not, you know, it's not created in the right way because when people, have, when people are in their 30s and they're all, they're all of a sudden, if I do this, this, and this, and this, I'm going to be massive, it's going to be awesome. And then they get an interest in it and then they go and research it and then, they're, mm -hmm. and then they are world leading at it. Some of these people, you know. Look, you know, and it goes all the way up the chain, right? So and, I, and I down the the, it goes down the chain as well, Phil. Sorry to cut you off. I'll let you finish that. I want to finish this. The reason it goes down the chain, like my son goes to music lessons twice a week, over three and a half hours worth of music lessons a week playing the drums. He's a little prodigy. He's brilliant, can read music, can play the drums. If you ever see a solo, you can, like we've got him, I've got him in there to like learn and wipe out. He's nine, right? He got a C, <laughs> in, awesome. he got a C in music at school. Yeah, because they they were and I, and I, and I'm, I lost my mind over it. Like he and they don't know they don't know he's doing all this stuff after hours. All they know nope. is they've got a set curriculum and that curriculum is the recorder and he's got a C in music. Yeah, but he can read that music. Like he can actually read it. None of the other kids in the class can. You know, that to me is the is just proves how broken it is at that lowest level. You know, before it even well, goes up the chain. Yeah, let's take it back up the other end of the spectrum. It doesn't. It doesn't change. That brokenness is, you know, it pervades into some really interesting areas. So I have the fortune to teach at UNSW, mm. um, and I teach entrepreneurship to full-time MBA candidates. And one of the key measures for business schools around the world, you know, every everyone from you know Harvard, Stanford, right through to you know AGSM, University of Melbourne, UWA, all these schools get rated by different rankings. One of them is the FT.com, so the Financial Times, FT MBA rankings. And the key, one of the key measures, the key defining measure of success, which is easily 10 years done, is what were you earning before you came to business school? And what are you earning two years out of business school? Wow. And guess what? The people who have decided that they're going to use their entrepreneurship, sorry, their, their two years or 16 month or year at business school out of the workforce to build a venture that could end up creating massive value across the board, but not for another 10 years, they have to put zero in that post MBA box. Right. And as a consequence, that zero ends up saying, well, that school is not producing that the right style of person. Ridiculous. You go, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's got, like it's it insane got on every level, right? Yeah. That's just, I mean, I know from my personal experience, 
you put everything into a business like I did with Warrior U. And yep. Warrior U was I, – I believed I was there to solve a problem. My problem was – multiple problems. And the problems were to mentor, so to take people who, who wanted something still to hold on to when they left the ADF, so, so to give these yep. mentors a reason, and then to link them up with kids – you know, because I remember what it was like when I wanted to join the army at sixteen and had no one there to look up to. So I wanted, I wanted mm. them, you know, yep. sixteen through to thirty, and then I created thousands of dollars worth, hours and hours of content, you know, in the Warrior U course. Yep. And then only to find, you know, pro- I'm probably at the point now where I'm where I'm emotionally enough stable about it to say that's failed. And I don't mean it's failed from a financial perspective because it, it, it could be a lot more if I, you know, if I branded it and actually priced the, the course at what it was initially priced at and then pushed all my money into marketing it, you know, we could have, you know, at $300 a, a person, we could probably have 50 people a month sign up to it. But, yep. but the problem is it was the, the people who let me down actually were the mentors and People who are asking yeah. to do things for free, I guess, <laughs> because yeah. the model was broken because I didn't understand humanity properly. I didn't understand these people don't really want to the same thing I want, even though I've monetized it at my end. They don't really yep. want to mentor all these kids because it takes bloody time and effort. And so the model was, was broken. But it took me to go through two years of that and a, and a lot of my own personal investment to then come out the other side of it where this podcast is now probably at around 110,000 downloads where yeah it's amazing yeah, i love that moving towards moving towards a global brand cutting away the military from military aspect to warrior u and making it a modern day you know warrior u is a you know it's it is a modern warrior that is what it means it's an analogy for a modern warrior and then funneling those people from the podcast down into the website, then down to an offering of whatever that offering looks like. It'll probably be a video course. Yep. And it's a completely different – it's a completely – it will be a completely different business than what it started as. But that's being an entrepreneur, right? Every day. Like, so the interesting thing, there's two, two really fascinating things. And I, I was I was absolutely psyched when I saw the 100,000 listens um, – mm campaign come up because I thought, you know what, that is just, that takes work. So the thing that people don't see behind the scenes because all this glitzy Instagram style, you know, approach to life, people don't see how many hours you'll spend editing, you know, sourcing people, trying to organize a schedule, trying to do all the things you need to do to make it actually look really seamless. Well, I know Um, you know, because I told you in November last year when we had that little uh, get together, I told you how long it was taking me and you said, just do it faster. (laughs) <laughs> and i was like yeah fair cool that's <laughs> a fair yeah. cool like yeah I get well it. you know you said well you, you get profi- like it's, it's you like do. any craft right you, yeah. get, you get proficient at this stuff mm-hmm. as you get a chance to do it but the interesting thing is that incentives always play a really massive role like the thing that i talk a lot about to students to my team as i'm doing partnerships getting investors on board you know trying to work out all this stuff is show me the incentive dynamic that's at play Right. Like for you, for in the early, earlier setup for Warrior U, you know, the incentives I don't think well enough examined for the mentors. Mm. When it comes down to when, when I'm trying to build a product, we've just launched our, the first earliest um, availability for a pre pregnancy health product for, for Drop. And the incentives there are very, very clear, rational incentives. Mm. And then a, like, a completely different set of irrational incentives that are at play. And, and my opportunity is to get after and understand those and, de- and become the expert in that set of incentives because if I understand that well and I get the problem well-defined, then I can, you know, develop a set of solutions that can meander and be flexible enough to sort of deal with that. And that's for anyone, right? So if you've got an idea that you've been holding on to for ages, whether it be something like worry you or something vastly different, the reality is that you've got to do two things. You've got to obsess about that problem and know as much about that problem as you can. Don't spend much to understand it, right? Don't because people mm. people spend money to create a solution. You don't have to spend money to learn about the problem, right? And the second thing is just become a, an absolute ninja at trying to work out where the incentives lie. Because as soon as you know that, that's what the predictor of behavior is. Mm. And once you've got that, that makes things a whole lot easier. Well, you're right. And I mean, I went to you 
couple of years back now when I first rolled this out and said, hey, I've got this idea, what do you think? And you said, I think it's really good, but you have to understand how you're going to incentivize the mentors. And I went, yeah, 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 I'll get to that. And here we are two years later. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what I didn't do? And you're like, yeah, you didn't really understand. But, but, the, but interestingly, Phil, during that two-year journey of Warrior U in its old form, obviously December 6th it all changes, as everyone will find out. In that two-year two period – it was all the emails I was getting say, hey, can you do this? Yep. That, that has shaped where I'm going. Because totally. I have more emails saying, hey, man, do I have to be in the military to do this course? Hey, man, I want to do something on leadership. What, what can you help me with? You're an expert in it. Hey, man, I really want to work on my resilience, but I'm not going for anything in the military. Hey, man, I want to do human optimization. I've seen you're trying keto. I've seen you're trying to use Halo Neurosport. I've seen you're trying to use nootropics. I've seen you're doing this. And I'm like, huh. I get 20 of those emails a week and I get one person sign up a week. What the fuck am I doing? <laughs> and it was that. Yeah, totally. It's that. It's that you need to listen to, as an entrepreneur, you need to listen to the market because the market will tell you what it wants. Mm-hmm. It, doesn't want, it doesn't want red Nikes. It wants black Nike Jordans, right? It, it's, it doesn't want pink swooshes or, you know, it'll tell you. It will. People a- just as won't long buy as it. you're in market long enough to listen and as long as you've got an awareness of what to listen for, right? Mm. So the thing that is often the case is that, you know, you hear about founders and it's happened to me before, you run out of money, right? You just can't stay around long enough to make it work. You've got obligations. You could even go to a point of bankruptcy. You don't want to go to that place, yeah. particularly if you're just trying to explore a side. Scaling, or something is, scaling is ridiculous too, isn't it? Because sc- everyone it goes is. scale, scale, scale. The problem with scaling is if, you, if you're selling, like we were saying before, if you're selling a T-shirt you know, and you're making them for $5 and selling them for $10, you can never, ever make enough to scale. You will always That's be right. buying more stock and then having them sit there and not making any money. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the ultimate thing on scale, because technology tells us all about this sort of stuff, you think about the number of people that a barbershop, and I use this example all the time, the number of people that a barbershop could support every week right? So just do the basic maths. Maybe on a busy busy day, there's maybe, I don't know, 30 people that go through for two dudes who are cutting hair. Mm. And, you know, if they're open for five days, you know, five threes, 1,550 people, that's, as, that's their top end max limit. Mm. So then look at Slack, the messaging service that a lot of people use at work or in, you know, their side things. If you have, if you're not familiar with Slack, it's like a, it's like messenger in Facebook, but just for teams. It's, it's huge. Um, it's every huge, one of their it's employees huge overseas, it's not so big here yet, but it is, it yeah, is huge. Yeah. yeah. So I, I use it actively here for a bunch of stuff, but you know, the, the reality is that every one of the Slack employees is essentially servicing about 12,000 users wow. at any given time. To, right. And to, it's because it's software, it's a different model. To go back, but when you though, think about it scale, you need to know about that. To go back to the barbershop um, idea, though, so if you can't, you can't increase their productivity, you can't increase their speed, you've got the best you've possibly got, they're putting through 15 each a day, which is 30 a day, let's say, whatever. Yep. However, if you then have other stages to the haircut, so now, now you come in an hour early and get a massage, then you're having a beer, then you're getting the haircut, and then after the haircut, you're going in and you're in a, in a, in a dry sauna. Like that's what an entrepreneur is going to do to that. Well, the entrepreneur will do that and then they'll also go, so I'm going to become, you know, like the YouTube leading authority on a particular hairdo and now I've got, you know, tens of millions of people who are just keen to follow this cult following mm. that then evolves you into being a speaker at conferences and just doing really cool stuff that you would never have thought of, right, which is highly scalable compared to stuff which is, you know, I've got to put more coin into a particular idea. And whereas and so a, disruptor, that- a disruptor would do something more along the lines of, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create an app where the hairdresser comes to your workplace or something like that. Right. Exactly right. So, I mean, there's all these different ways of cutting it, but the only way you can do that is if you've got a really good idea about what the problem is. Mm. And then sometimes, as we're trying to do now, is find a solution for something where there is no real problem. It's just a market. That happens all, all the time. That happens. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to Elon Musk who went, and, and Tim Ferriss, who went, let's make PayPal, let's make Uber, let's make Tesla. Yep. Like, look at, look at that for two, those two guys between, between them. I mean, Tim obviously has invested money after the, the uh, success of the four-hour work week. 
But, you know, there's, there's problems there. SpaceX, Hyperloop. Like, this is a guy who just sees something and, go, and doesn't complain about it. He just goes, oh, I'm just going to fix this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's also next level because he sort of looks at the at the really big themes, right? Mm. Yeah, you mentioned before sort of climate change. Like the planet is, the planet's fucked, right? Like I don't know what the solution is going to be, and the unfortunate reality is that it'll probably be our kids' children who will be the ones who'll be left holding the can trying to work it out. I have every confidence that they're going to work it out, right? Because there'll be technology evolutions, there'll be things that they'll be able to see that we can't see. No, well, you know, but- the other the other aspect to this is that um, they won't be all right and there will be huge water shortages and food shortages and there'll be, hu- mm-hmm. there'll be massive, it'll probably start in the US and, and then global, you know, and then wider continental Europe and there'll be there'll be rioting and fighting and, and, and humanity will go. And, and I'm quite fine with that as well, actually. You know, it'll just – it'll go back and Mother Nature will have her day because we – because as a species we weren't able to rationally disagree. To deal with it well. Yeah, which is what it's about well, because it's become political. That's, that's true. That's true. I mean, the, the other thing as well is that, you know, Musk goes, we've got to find another place to live. Mm. How are we going to do that? We're going to do that by – finding out how to make space travel somehow affordable and the rest is kind of modern history, right? The idea of, you know, going to Soviet Russia as an American to buy, you know, three rockets, three rockets for $10 million each to then try and launch one of them to prove that you can land it and then go through all the stuff that is all now across social media, you know, not landing well, blowing up on a floating barge, but then having this unbelievably mind-blowing experience where Falcon Heavy, you know, lifts off and you see all these things land. You go, holy shit. Like I remember watching that live and just being stopped in the middle of the street and these, I was, I was holding my iPhone and all these people were crowding around me looking at it. And we were just shaking our heads in thankful disbelief. Right. And, yet, and yet the the moon land, the the moon astronauts all think he's a crackpot. None of them wanted to pat him on the back, and they're saying a yeah. civilian shouldn't be doing this. Like I just couldn't. When I heard that, I was like, "Come on, yeah, come on, yeah. take it easy, guys." But that's that's next level being able to organise all of that, all the logistics that went behind that. Even you know, oh, I mean, I've heard just, stuff it's about the ultimate team, right? I've heard stuff about, and is it tall poppy syndrome? I've heard stuff about Tesla being a failed entity. Yeah. I reckon, like every company, it's had its fair share of you know, near-death experiences. Mm. There's no doubt. I mean, you've had them at Worry You, I've had them at Drop. We, we all have them. It's just that we don't talk about them very often because mm. we feel as though that makes us feel vulnerable. Mm. But you said something on Instagram this week that you know vulnerability is actually key, and you're exactly right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to learn from that vulnerability too, don't you? Really? Yeah, resiliency. Yeah. And what's uh, what's up for you now? What are you working on? So my day job is as CEO of a company called Drop Bio. We, we, a bunch of very, very interesting scientists came up with um, a discovery, what, like most discoveries by accident. One of our senior scientists was running an experiment where we all deal in sort of blood science. So one of our scientists who was doing a PhD at the time had this thought and the thought was, look, you know, so 55% of your of your blood volume is red blood cells. And we know red blood cells to do one particular task in the body. And that, that task is to transport gas around the body. So breathe in, O2 goes through your body, breathe out, CO2 comes out. And we've always known that red blood cells play that role. But the question in, in her mind and, and obviously in my co-founder's mind as well was, so why is it that when you give a blood test or you go and give blood and they take you know, vials of blood and they take it to a lab, they spin it down and it gets separated into sort of the white at the top, red at the bottom, little buffy coat in between. Why is it that the red bit just gets thrown away? I mean, it's got to play another role, right? It's, it's a large proportion. As it turns out, in that red blood cell component lives all these signaling molecules. So you talked before about, you know, how nature can signal. So as it turns out, there's little things called cytokines and they're naturally occurring proteins in your blood. And they are the things that go haywire when a chronic disease starts to take hold. In fact, they are the early warning signal inside your body. But of course, for the most part, we in medicine haven't been looking at it because we throw away the red red blood cell bit, right? Mm. So if we took the red blood cell bit and we looked at really high precision science, 
could we see a signal over time? And the answer is yes, we can. Really? What if we take that signal and through the same sort of small amount of blood, which is 30 microliters, about a drop, a little bit more, we can take DNA from that and then we can start to use that as a, a standard and we can map against that to see what's happening at every point when you give us a sample, maybe every month or every quarter. Awesome. And from that basis, we can, we believe in time, we'll be able to predict chronic disease onset. As, as it's and creeping we up think on you. that, yeah. Like and a, so the, so the idea there is we create a, a healthcare system for healthy people. That's a biomarker. Yeah. So everything that you can look at in sort of science that is human essentially is a biomarker, everything from a, a, a genotype, a gene, um, all the way through to protein, through to lifestyle data that we, that we look at, all of those things are collectively known as a biomarker. Yeah. And we just found a way to organize them to give a profile to sort of show people what's going on. And so we, uh, we're building a, essentially a, a platform where people ultimately will be able to go online. They'll be able to buy a, a subscription and they can prick their finger and receive back really interesting insight about what their general health is like, but also if they're trying to achieve a lifestyle objective that is time sensitive, things like falling pregnant, mm. things like um, walking away from a type 2 diabetes pre-diagnosis, mm. things like identifying the, fa- the, the chronic disease that's evolving because you had a family history of it. All those things we'll be able to do in the coming years. And we think that that's going to, that will create the inflection point to create a healthcare system that focuses on healthy people. Wow. Because as we both know, the healthcare systems at the moment are focused on disease mm. treatment. And, you know, you, we always see these really big numbers about people, you know, one in two people have this and one in three people have that. But for every one in three or one in two, there's also one in two who is healthy and they want to stay healthy, but there's no system for that. So can you, can my objective have, with DROP can you is not, to create that system. Can you not have uh, a real-time feedback? Um, okay, so where I'm going with that is there's a company in America called Whoop yeah, Matt Davey from CrossFit Euphonic got me onto him. I've, I've just subscribed recently. I'm just waiting for the product. But it's $30 a month. I think it's $30 US a month. You wear it up on your upper arm and it takes a, a measurement of your heart rate variability every like a few times a second. Yep. And I've also noticed from the little um, experiment I did with keto that you can you can go and measure your blood, but you can also get these patches now that have a little tiny needle that goes into you and I'm just Correct. wondering if if drop met whoop and you had this thing on your arm that was inside you all the time and it was measuring and it was going back through the app and and sending it somewhere sending that data so your heart rate variability along with along with your resting heart rate your, your current blood glucose levels your ketone level all that stuff and then you could just yep. while you're training and you could be told well today you should be recovering tomorrow you should be doing this or we just noticed something happening in your genes. You know, there's something, there's a biomarker there that's different and we need to go and see a doctor. Look, this is this is the future of healthcare, right? And it's happening now. Yeah, so the stuff that you're talking about, the stuff that you'll receive is, you know, the formative stages of what we'll all be doing, you know, in 20 years' time and 30 years' time. Mm. I mean, you know, you can... You, know, you can go and get from 23andMe.com, you can spit in a tube that they send you, send it back. They send you back all of your ancestry. And if you're in the US, a bunch of health-related reports. Mm. And it's all about talking about your predispositions because of the fact that you're you, mm. right? It's your genetics. And that's one piece of the puzzle. It's a very important piece, but it's not all the piece. And so what we're doing is piecing all of that together. But the technology you're talking about um, will ultimately play a massive role in populations where people do require to remain alive, you know, very regular monitoring in a really cost-effective way that doesn't rely on them having to be in a hospital or having to have massive draws of blood taken or having inconvenience sort of thrust upon them because the system only knows how to look at certain things. Mm. This is where all this stuff's going. So it's a massively cool place to play. And I think I was just actually talking on a podcast just before I got on this one about how the role of science in all of this. Um, you know, we forget about, we look at all our wearables and the data we've got, but at the end of the day, all of this has to be grounded in really solid science and that's what helps make progress progress work. So it's, it's just hugely exciting. So I'm, I'm keen to get that um, up and running well. Just need to get it up and running and adopted before Mother Nature takes over and climate change makes us all perish. I'm all over it, mate. Yeah. We'll be good. Solve climate change along the way. 
<laughs> Maybe not that far. I'll, I'll stick to the blood stuff. We'll, yeah. we'll get that sorted. Yeah, no, that's awesome. It sounds like a really interesting initiative. Where can people find out more about what you're doing, Phil? Yeah, thanks, mate. If you go to dropbio.com, so D-R-O-P-B-I-O.com, and you can check out all of what we've talked about on LinkedIn. We try to be quite respectful of of the science that we're doing. The interesting thing here is that the, the science teaches us a lot too. So um, our science and the things that we plan to publish will tell the world about what we've seen, and it'll be very, very impactful for Australia, but also for many Asian countries as well. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And um, be in motion. Give that a shout out because I reckon that's an amazing thing as well. Oh, you're too kind. So, yeah, look, be in motion. It was um, – I'd heard a lot of what you said and actually I think you've probably played a bigger role in this than you probably realise. You know, when we when we talk about resilience of often born from adversity and there's plenty of adversity out there um, yeah. and, you know, having had a small amount of time in the military and have a lot of friends and relationships, you know, we've seen – a whole range of adversity come from that, but also just in mainstream life, you know, people, uh, divorce rates are up, you know, poverty is up, all these things is, you know, the stress is high in most parts of life. And I think people sort of just forget that encouragement plays a massive role. So the way that you talk about positivity and the way that people have come on the show just are just amped about positivity is just really, really important. But it just got me thinking about, so how could you do that in an unexpected kind of way? Mm. And the, the best analogy I can provide you, mate, to be honest, is, you know, when you go to a hospital and you see somebody get given flowers, right? They're in a hospital bed. It's a shitty environment, clean but shitty. And they just, they see the flowers arrive. And there's this point of anticipation between, <clears throat> excuse me, when somebody presents it to them and when they find out who it's from. Mm. And, I've observed that a number of times and it's just sort of like somebody going, oh, I can't believe someone thought about me. Mm. I can't believe that someone went to the effort to make the call, to place the order, to make it work and they'll never know what the feedback is but it's a pretty cool experience to make them just change the way that their day is played out. Mm. So I thought about it and then I just built a brand called Be In Motion, as you know, which you're an ambassador for and I'm really grateful for it and it's it's basically you go online and you can – pay 10 bucks, you put forward a message that you want to give to someone. And that comes through to one of my team members. They handwrite that message on a card. They put it in snail mail and it gets posted to the person you want to, to go to. The trick though is that they don't know who it's from until they open it up. When they open it up, there's a card, there's obviously the card, there's the message. It's very contextual because it's all about them. But on the back of the card is a QR code and you scan the QR code through the, the phone app um, on your smartphone and it opens up a page that reveals who it's from. Mm. And as soon as you do that, then you're, you're prompted to do that for someone that you know. And so the idea is just to pay forward unexpected encouragement. And we launched it, I think about four weeks ago. And uh, I'll be honest, we're having a little bit of trouble keeping up with the demand, but it's good to, awesome. it's good to see that people just want to make that happen. So it's a side hustle. I've put everything I know into how to build a brand and a product quickly to see if it works. And I'm proud about it because there have been people who have gone, you know what, I'd love to send someone a message mm. and they've been mindful enough to get off their ass and do something about it. So it's, it's a cool enablement tool. Mate, thank you. I'm honoured that you'd say that about me having a small part to play in that. So thanks. On uh, December 6th, I'm doing a live podcast in Sydney the day after Jocko leaves town. And well, I'd actually like you in to the be, audience. I'd like you to be one of the one of the one of the guys up on the stage answering questions. We're going to, uh, if, oh, if you'll accept that, wicked. we're going to have, you know, I think four to five experts in different areas on the three pillars of leadership, resilience, human optimization, and then the audience, which will be uh, might be three people or it could be two hundred. We'll we'll have a microphone roving around the audience answering those questions, but we're gonna we're gonna record it all and then we're gonna play it. And very Apple-esque of me, I'm gonna then announce uh, where Warrior U is going as of December seventh, the next day. Yeah, so I'd love you to be part of that, mate. And I want to thank you for being on the Warrior U podcast and thank you also for all the support you've shown me over the last couple of years, mate. You've been a great mentor and, you know, I always watch with much excitement when you when you start to, first of all, run in the morning with your weight vest on at ridiculous speeds. <laughs> <laughs> but also uh, I think that where you're going at the moment with this, with, you know, drop, you know, it's going to be, you know, you know I love data, so it's going to be awesome. <laughs> we think it's gonna be pretty cool mate i mean i think you and i are just part of a network of people just trying to push humanity forward it's just a real pleasure so mate keep up the great work you're doing a cracking job cool thanks phil 
Righto. Let me just wrap a few things up. Before I go, I just want to let you know that I'm teamed up with Patreon. This is so that you can donate assistance to the podcast. Obviously, putting all this together each week does come at a financial and a time cost. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can head to www.patreon.com forward slash warrior you and you can throw in whatever you feel like. It's greatly appreciated. And there are some cool giveaways on the site too for different tiers of sponsorship. So please check it out. Um, thanks to my newest patron, Patreon donator, Marcus, for the $5 a month. Cheers, brother. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm just amazed that anyone's actually listening to the podcast at the end here to even go to Patreon. But obviously you did, so cheers, man. Um, right, and finally, just to end the show, this week the podcasts I've personally listened to have been as follows. I've listened to the Rich Roll podcast. It was a really great one with his dad. It was, um, was worth listening to. The Jocko Willick podcast, of course, and I listened to How I Work by Amantha Imber. Righto, thanks everyone. And remember, live a life worth living. Catch you later. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.